good morning. Everybody sounds like they stayed up late watching football. I'll just go ahead and say that in advance. I'll do my best not to put you to sleep or at least encourage you towards sleep. You know, there's, there's people all around you that exercise for fun. Like, what in the world is wrong with you people? Exercising for, no, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. But they get so good at exercising that they have to add a weighted vest so that they can run in a weighted vest and, and they can do some like body resistance exercise with a weighted vest because, you know, just normal stuff, that's, that's just not enough anymore. And so I'm guessing they do that so when they take the vest off, like the world gets lighter and they can run farther and they can run faster and they can exercise more. Well, think about how many of us are walking through our spiritual lives with weighted vests because we've become so good at carrying our own guilt. We've become so good at walking through life with the weight of just one more pound of sin, one more pound of guilt, one more pound of failure. And instead of dealing with it, instead of running to the remedy for it, we just keep going and we keep going and we keep going. Can you imagine what life would be like if Jesus just took that off? Maybe if you just took that off and gave it to him. Can you imagine how much lighter your life would be? Can you imagine how much further you could run with Jesus? Can you imagine how much faster you could run out of, after Jesus if the weight that you're carrying that you're not meant to carry was gone? Or in Hebrews today, continuing our study, and again, it's Jesus is better, 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 and he's going to say it as many times as he has to say it, and I'm going to say it as many times as I have to say it till you actually believe it. And I don't mean you believe it as in that you agree that's a good statement. I mean that you believe it in the sense that it changes and fills your heart and your affections until I believe it to where it changes my heart and it fills up my affections. We really believe it. Because if we really believed it, we'd never turn away from him. And if we really believed it, we'd hold on to him with all we have. And if we really believed it, we would press on to maturity, and it doesn't matter what we have to go through to get there. So we're going to be in chapter 8 today, which follows chapter 7. Right? Extended, sesh, uh, extended section of the book from about 5 to uh, probably through 10 uh, on the high priesthood of Jesus, and so we have looked at him and the ways he's similar to the other priests with offerings and all this stuff. We've looked at him, and he's qualified to be a priest. That's what we looked at last week. We've looked at him, and he's better than the priest that, that offered before. And then last week, what we looked at is this movement of Jesus, or, or this movement of the priesthood from an Old Testament priesthood to Jesus. And so the Old Testament priesthood, it was you know, from the line of Levi. The Old Testament priesthood had to have Aaron if they were going to be a high priest. The Old Testament priesthood sacrificed blood, uh, bulls and goats to, to, to make offerings for sin. The Old Testament priesthood could not perfect you. It couldn't forgive you. It couldn't deal with your sin problem no matter how hard it tried. And it couldn't grant you nearness to God and relationship to God. So it moved but did it move legitimately? Yes. We met this guy named Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is this Old Testament figure who was a priest to God, uh, kind of curious and kind of interesting. You can go and listen to last week's if you want to know more about it. He was a legitimate priest in the Old Testament. And then we get this promise. God has sworn that I will make you, 
Messiah, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that leads us to Jesus, a legitimate priest, a better priest, an eternal priest who can do what the law never could do, perfect you. Could do what the law never could do, grant you access to the presence of God. Could do what the law never could do, intercede for you day after day after day, always living to intercede on your behalf before God the Father. And so that was last week. This week we're, we're moving in and we're getting two more ways that Jesus is better. Right? Jesus is better because he ministers in a better tabernacle or a better tent, the heavenly one. And then Jesus is better because he's got a better covenant that he works with, making better promises to us as his people. So that's what we're going to look at in, in Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, so let's read. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that we would look into this word and behold Jesus. And in beholding Jesus, we'd become more like Jesus as we behold his glory. More than that, I pray this word would look into us. It would open up our hearts and it would open up our minds to Jesus as better, to Jesus as a redeemer, to Jesus who's forgiven our sins and removed our guilt as far as the east is from the west, who's chosen to forget our sins. And Father, that we can live as those who are redeemed. We can live as those who are forgiven. We can live as those who do not carry the weight of guilt anymore because Jesus has carried it for us. So I pray that you would set people free today and I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So treasure Christ for his better new covenant of grace. Treasure Christ for his better new covenant of grace. Look at the first step in this. The old covenant remained external and lacked the ability to deal with our sin debt. The old covenant remained external and lacked the ability to deal with our sin debt. So, you know, if if you're like, Chris, I need you to run until you wear out. I'm like, all the way to the mailbox, all the way back, collapse, I'm done. Now, you could put a ball and I could last a little longer, but still, I'm going to collapse pretty early. You know, my son went out for cross country for a little while, and like, so he went for like over a mile. I'm like, man, that's good. And then he comes home and he's just like, you know, some of y'all have run half marathons and you've got the stickers to prove it. Some of you got all the way up to the full marathon and you got stickers to prove it. But no matter what range you are on that spectrum, there is at some point you are going to run your last step and collapse. Run your last step and be absolutely exhausted. We who become people who are professional runners, who are trying to outrun their guilt by any means possible, and you know what we find? There eventually comes a time where we get tired of running, and it's still right there and jumps on us. It's still right there in that quiet moment of the night. I tried so hard to be busy today and not hear it, and then I wake up in the middle of the night. I tried so hard to outrun it by, by working really hard and doing things for Jesus, And yet, there's that moment where I'm still, and it's there anyways. Because here's a simple truth. You are guilty. I am guilty. Now, there is false guilt. We're dealing with something, not not that. There's real guilt, and, and you're it. I'm it. And it doesn't matter how far I run, it's still right there inside of me. It doesn't matter where I go, it's still there inside of me. But we have become so good at trying to outrun our guilt. We try to outrun it by being victims. Well, don't you know the way I was raised? Don't you know where I was born? Don't you know? We've, we've become so good at trying to outrun it because we can blame other people. Don't you know my boss? Have you met my parents? That dude in traffic cut me off. <laughs> and so I can blame and blame and blame. We've become so good at trying to outrun our sin. And here's what we do. When somebody tries to approach us to help us like, deal with something, we become like porcupines. We get super prickly and super defensive. And we, we blow up at them or we come up with all the, don't you know, I know all this stuff about you too. And so we make charges against them. And, and, and we get super defensive when anybody gets close to an area of our life that isn't in line with what God has for us. And this is a great way for you and for me to kind of get a sense of where our walk with Jesus is at any given moment. How do I respond when somebody confronts me about my sin? How do I respond when somebody points out something in my life? It's a great measure for for how we're walking with Jesus in in any given moment. How else do we deal with our sin? We minimize it. Man, it wasn't that big a deal. It's not like I murdered anybody. Or we make really good excuses. We make really good excuses. and, And I can find a reason to justify anything I do. But when I run out of excuses, what's still there? Guilt. When I run out of distractions, what's still there? Guilt. When I run out of self-pity, of feeling victimized, what's still there? 
Guilt. When I run out of denials, what's still there? Guilt. And if you were to look at the history of humanity, if you were to look at the history of religions, and if you were to look at the history of, uh, of psychological therapies, they're concerned, not only, but in a big way, they're concerned with what do you do with this thing called guilt? I was listening to a, a, a video this week, and uh, he was reading a book from, from an author, and his book was called Feel Good. And I'm going to give you the greatest remedy for guilt that you can ever imagine. Guilt doesn't do anything. Guilt only harms you. Guilt is non-productive. Just don't feel guilty. How's that working out, right? Wait, so the only thing I have to do is train my mind not to feel guilty and it'll all be gone? Until you get quiet and woken up at two in the morning and the guilt is still there. Religions will always fail at trying to deal with sin. Any therapies out there will fail because they don't have a solution for sin. And do you know what? The old covenant itself failed because it couldn't deal permanently with the problem of human sin and human guilt. The next chapter, you know what it's going to say? In chapter 9, it's going to say their, their consciences were not cleansed. Meaning they still had the nagging, plaguing, chasing thoughts of guilt that were part of their experience. It didn't go away. But then the chapter keeps going and you meet a man named Jesus who lived a sinless life that you were required to live and couldn't. And he lived it on your behalf. And then he died on a cross for your sins on your behalf. And he was buried. And God raised him from the dead so that he could take your sin on him and put his righteousness, his perfection on you. Only in the person of Jesus Christ is guilt truly and completely and totally dealt with. But in the person of Jesus Christ, your guilt is perfectly and completely and totally done away with. I was hoping that would be better news to y'all. We'll keep going, right? Like, praise God, there's a solution for the problem of human guilt. Let's look at it in the text. The Old Testament couldn't remedy it. It was, it, it was too external. It stayed there. Now, we're not going to really go through uh, one through five, so let me just give you a brief synopsis. Jesus is better because he ministers in a better tabernacle, a better temple, a better tent, right? He goes and he is in the true temple, the heavenly temple, the one that God made, not the earthly one. He couldn't even go into the earthly one to offer sacrifices. It wasn't, he wasn't according to the law. And so there's this copy on earth. It's a shadow and a copy, and it's imperfect, but it's patterned after a better one, the one that is in heaven. And so he quotes Moses, or he quotes God saying to Moses, right, build it after the pattern. And so Moses built it after the pattern. What was the pattern? There's a true temple in heaven where Jesus stands ministering a better ministry to us. And then as we get to the focal verses of six and following, we're seeing that Jesus has a better ministry because he's a better mediator. That is, he stands between two parties. There's God and there's us. And we are eternally separated from each other. And Jesus stands right in the middle 
to bring the two parties together. He mediates. He brings the two parties back into relationship. So he has a better ministry, a ministry that mediates between God and man. And then look what it says about it. It's a better ministry because it offers a better covenant. What makes this covenant so much better? This covenant gives us better promises. And so what we're going to do and what this text is really about is it's about prosecuting a case against the Old Testament. It's faulty. It, it can't do what it was meant to do. And the way it makes it faulty or, or prosecutes the case is by introducing the new covenant and showing how this new covenant did what this old covenant couldn't. And so he's going to go through there and he's, he talks about that, that it's a better ministry because it's a better covenant because he's a better mediator, because there's better promises. And so one of the things we're looking at, because he doesn't go into detail in the old, about the Old Covenant, one of the things we're looking at is what was the deficiency of the Old Covenant? What could the Old Covenant not do? Because all he says in the text is it was faulty. If it wasn't faulty, we wouldn't need a second covenant, right? If the first one wasn't faulty, we wouldn't need a second covenant, So, if blood of bulls and goats could forgive you, then Jesus does not have to come, live, be slandered, mocked, and die and rise again. He didn't have to do any of that. But it was faulty. The covenant couldn't do what it was designed. It was never meant to be permanent. It was always meant to be a placeholder for the coming of Jesus when that time came. It was faulty. It couldn't do it. But what else was faulty? He finds fault with them. What's the problem with this amazing law system that was built up? What's the problem with these amazing priests? What's the problem with having the perfect expression of the will of God given to man? What's the problem with that? You are. I am. We're the problem. The problem is the human heart. And no matter how many good rules are written out there, on tablets of stone, nothing in here changed. And so with a fallen human heart, no matter how good the law is, no matter how much bread from heaven comes, no matter how much water from a rock comes, no matter how many miracles you see, no matter how the presence of God dwells in the middle of something, does not matter. Because the human heart is left unchanged and everything stays out there. Everything stays external. Uh, God said it this way in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel uh, 36, 26, it says, I am going to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. What was the problem? My heart is dead and unfeeling and hard and nothing can get in there. And so God has to pull that out to put in a soft and tender and sensitive heart to respond to him and to respond to his word. The heart was the, was the problem And so the new covenant comes, and it's this better covenant. What's the problem with the old covenant? It stayed out there. It was memorized, and it was learned, and it was read, but it couldn't do anything in here. What's the problem with the old covenant? Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and I'm still guilty at the end of the process. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and my conscience plagued me day after day after day. It couldn't deal with my guilt, and it couldn't deal with my conscience. And I'm stuck in it, and and I can't get out of it. And so he promises a new covenant. Not a covenant like the old one. It's going to be different. 
This covenant's going to be different. Not like the covenant that they left and couldn't stay with. A new covenant that they could. A new covenant with a new heart. And so the law remained external. Sin was never truly dealt with. How often do you and I live like old covenant believers? How often do you and I live like doing the religious thing, doing the church thing, doing the study thing, but not living in the forgiveness of a cleansed conscience and a cleansed life? How many of us are still trying to work so hard that God will accept us? How many of us are hiding from our sin? How many of us are trying to make excuses how many of us are trying to, to figure out a way to work off the debt? If we could just make enough sacrifices. And all the while, it's just adding weight to that weighted vest of life. All the while, we're just adding more and more weight to our life. Accumulating and accumulating and accumulating. And life gets so heavy. Why is it so heavy? Because you're carrying a weight you were not made to carry. Why is my conscience plaguing so I have to have the radio turned up? Why is my conscience plaguing so I have to scroll? Why is my, my conscience plagued up so that I have to run till I drop? Because I'm, it's like people in our neighborhood, they're running and running and running. It's like, some of them, it looks like, like, are you running from something? Like, I don't see anything chasing you, but they have this look on their faces like they're trying to get away from something. Themselves, probably. Not everybody that runs, but you definitely see that in some people. Instead of coming to Jesus to find the forgiveness of Jesus, I try to carry it on my own. I try to shift it. I try to hide from it. And we weren't meant to carry it. The Old Testament is a problem because it stayed external. The Old Testament was a problem because our sin debt could never be dealt with. Second, the new covenant empowers a heart-level obedience based on relationship and forgiveness. The new covenant empowers heart-level obedience based on relationship and forgiveness. So, you know, we have to, like, we're not millionaires, so I know that's shocking. So we have four kids, and, and they go back to school every year. And, and three of them are girls, so they go back to school every year, and they want new clothes to go back to school every year. That's like a small fortune. And, and, and so we, we have to give a budget, like, here's your budget, here's what, here's what, here's what we can do, and, you know... <laughs> Our kids aren't millionaires either, but they want Hoka, not like Adidas, right? They want Lulu and not you know, Target brand. They, you know, they want OnClouds or, or, or Birkenstock name brand. And, and so they'll come, Dad, can I get some Hoka's? Uh, is it in the budget? I mean, I, we gave you the budget. Right? Dad, 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 I, I, I need these new pair of tights. The only ones that'll work are Lulu. we got to have Lulu. Is it in the budget? Now, look, as often as we can, we love to give them good gifts. We, we love if there's, there's money to do it. We, we love to, for them to have those things. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's the budget. And so I'm sure times are like, God, my parents are such misers. I can't believe it. Or maybe they think, why'd you have all these kids? You should have just had me. Right? <laughs> well, um, but... Paul Paul is trying to take Paul Paul of the Year Award now. And so, you know what he does? Hey, kids, send me something to buy you, and I'll buy it for you. Like, it doesn't matter what kind of day they're having. It doesn't matter if they're rotten and they're untantrum. Just send, me, just send me a link of something to buy you, and I'll buy it. Or they come up, Dad, can, can I get some, some hocus? No, is it in the budget? Well, I'll just text Paul Paul. And you know what Paul Paul does? 
Amazon package, two days or less, here it is. Why do I tell you that? Because I'm convinced that in large part, your view of God will determine your level of obedience. Your view of God will determine at least your desired level of obedience. So if God is the great pawpaw in the sky, who's aging and has plenty of money, then I just need to find a way to get the goodies from him. I just need to find a way to send him the right link to give me what I want. And this obedience thing, like he doesn't care if I have a tantrum, he doesn't care how I act. This obedience thing, it's not that big a deal. Grace, no, cheap grace, not the bloody kind, but grace. And if we view God that way, the desire for holiness, the desire for obedience will not drive deeply in our hearts. We're not going to do it. Now, we may do enough obedience to get the goodies, or we may just be like, grace, I don't have to do anything because grace. What about, no, grace. What I would say about that is this. What I would would challenge you about that is this. If guilt is one of the primary destructive mechanisms in your life, And if the real problem in your life, at least part of the real problem of your life, is real legitimate guilt, then not talking about it doesn't do you any good. Telling you how much God loves you, not going to make you feel better. Anything except for exposing that sin, exposing that guilt, and then exposing the cross to that sin and guilt. Anything short of that is not a remedy. It's not a solution. It's not a help. And so let's give a grace that looks at sin and all its ugliness. Let's give a grace that goes through sin to repentance. And let's give a grace that goes through repentance all the way to a cross that says you're righteous because of the work of Jesus. You're forgiven because of the cross. You're made holy because of what I've done. How do we solve the problem? How do, we, how do we deal with the guilt problem? It's that Christ is good news. It's Christ is good news. So don't look at God like some pawpaw in the sky. But maybe you look at him this way. God is a stern, condemning father who always drives and always demands more and always expects better. And the best you can possibly do is wipe the scowl off his face and make it neutral. And how many of us live that way? Like, if I can just keep God from zapping me, I'm doing good. So I'm going to work as hard as I can for him not to get me. But he never smiles. Not in my view of him. He never smiles. Well, what kind of obedience are you going to give? You're probably going to obey as much as you can. You're probably going to be scared, and you're probably going to work as hard as you can possibly work until you completely wear out. And you're still going to collapse. And it's still going to catch you guilty. But what if you viewed God this way? What if God was a good, loving, and gracious father who delights in you? Who sets his affections on you? Who gave his son for you? What if he knew you better than you knew yourself and loved you anyway so deeply? How would you obey a God like that? How would you obey a God who you are secured in his love? 
How would you obey a father that you're secured in his love? How would you obey a father and a God that you love? How would you obey a father that you respect with, and admire with every fiber of your being? There's a kind of obedience that flows out of that relationship and that view of God that nothing else can touch. And that's the gospel. It is the loving God who has adopted you, declared you righteous, secured you to himself, loves you, and then you become more and more like him over the rest of your life because of how much you love and admire and, and think the world of him. So let's look at it. In the rest of the chapter, he is going to quote Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He's going to quote it pretty much exactly as it is in the Old Testament. So you can mark that down in, in your notes. And he's going to unpack it more in the, in the chapters to come. But for now, he's going to just quote it. He's not going to deal with how sins are forgiven. He's not going to deal with priesthood or any of that he's going to quote the new covenant that was promised in the old testament and he's going to say like this is to israel and this is to judah so what is the new covenant going to accomplish it's going to put god's divided people back together again when you're like i don't really care i don't even know if anybody knows if they're in israel or judah anymore but then if you were to read isaiah 55 you would find that the Gentiles are also welcomed into this new covenant. And if you were to read through Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you would run across this thing called the Lord's Supper. And you know at the Lord's Supper what you would hear? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then if you were to read through 1 Corinthians all the way to chapter 11, you would find in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus would say, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so when you see the new covenant in this text and in Jeremiah 31, what are you seeing? What the blood of Jesus will accomplish on our behalf. And it's at least four main components. I'm going to combine them into three. So three main components of the new covenant for you and for me. The old state external. They couldn't continue in it. They couldn't do anything about it. What is the new offer? I'm going to write my law on their mind. And I'm going to write it on their hearts. It is going to go from a tablet of stone out there that I walk by and I read and I say, that's cool, I would love to do it, to something that God inscribes on my heart to where my heart is transformed to actually be able to do it. And so what an important point. The law is not abolished because Jesus came. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. Not one piece of the law will pass away until all of it's fulfilled. Right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. Jesus did not come to erase the law. He came to pull out that stone tablet of your heart that couldn't do anything and put a tablet of flesh into your heart where his law becomes your delight and your meditation and your change from the inside to the outside instead of trying to change from the outside to the inside and so it says I'll, I'll write it on their minds and I'll, I'll write it on their hearts the main point of that what would I say it empowers you to glorify God with your life and do you know what you're made for to glorify God with your life. And so he's going to write on your heart, this is what it likes to put God on display. The God who loved you, won you, redeemed you, forgave you. This is what it's like to put him on display with your life. And so your heart's like, yes, I want to do that. Now it may be helpful for me to break the law down for you in three parts. So if you're to read through the Old Testament, you're going to find a whole set of laws that deal with the nation of Israel. 
Do you live in the nation of Israel? No, you live in the United States of America. We have laws too. You may agree with some. You may disagree with some. Not asking for opinions. The national law of Israel, though reflected God's character, and you can get principles out of it, it is not what you live under because you do not live in Israel. And then there's a whole set of laws that are called ceremonial laws. So laws about priests and laws about sacrifices and laws about cleansings. Well, we don't have priests and we don't have cleansing. And I I have never sacrificed an animal. Like some of y'all gotten into this farm thing and you guys have. But that's not for me. So that is done away with why? Because Jesus is our priest, and he's better. Jesus is our sacrifice once and for all. Jesus cleanses us, and so that part of the law is also removed. What's left? There is the moral law of God. The moral law of God is a reflection of the character and values of God. Just like when you make rules for your family. What do the rules for your family, why do you have them? This is our values. This is what we want for your life. This reflects us as parents. And hopefully reflects the Lord really well too, right? And so God has a moral law that says, this is what I'm like. This is how you glorify me on earth. This is what is best for you. This is what's best for you for human flourishing. This is what's best for you for human prospering. This is what's best for you for humans living in peace and tranquility. That part of the law didn't disappear because God didn't change But now it's written on your heart instead of on a tablet. And now you have a Holy Spirit that empowers you to obey it so that you can live a life that flourishes under God. Doesn't mean everything's going to go right and go well and go perfect. It means that you can live a life that glorifies God no matter what you face, which means you can experience the favor of God no matter what you face, and that you can live the the, the life that God has for you in, in, in the presence of God. So he's going to write it on your heart. You can glorify God with your life. The second piece is permanent relationship is established. Look at it. I will be their God and they will be my people. Permanent relationship is established. I will be their God. Now, that word God has a lot attached to it because it's the God who's revealed himself, the God who created, the God who redeemed, the God who saved, the God who is a refuge and a strength and ever-present help and trouble, the God who is a rock, the God who is a fortress, the God who is a refuge. I will be their God. That kind of God, the God who's revealed himself in these ways, and you'll be my people. I'll secure you forever. I'm not going to take the time to read all these, but I'm going to give you some references. Because this phrase is a covenant phrase that you will find scattered all over the Bible. Repeated after repeated after repeated. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. You know where it appears first? To a guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Then you go forward, and so Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Exodus 29, 45. I'm going to dwell right in the middle of Israel. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Abraham, Israel. You could fast forward into uh, the return from exile. Zechariah 8, 8. Zechariah 8, 8. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Do you know where the last time this phrase shows up is? You know where you're going to find it last? we got Abraham, we got Israel, we got the return of the exiles. We've got Hebrews, you and me. Do you know where it shows up last? Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, at the very end of the scripture. 
when a new heaven and a new earth comes down, and the dwelling place of God is with man fully and finally forever, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we don't need a temple anymore, we don't need a sun anymore, we have God as our light. And you know what one of the promises of that day will be? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. A permanent abiding relationship is offered to you by the work of Jesus Christ that adopts you into the family of God and loves you. And it says, like, you won't have to teach each other anymore. Everybody will know me. And and I would say that's partially true now. Do you know you have a Bible in your app? If not, you have a Bible on your phone. Do you know what else you have? You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You have everything you know to read and study and understand the will of God for yourself, to understand the truths of God for yourself. Now, we need other people, but what that means is there is the priesthood of believers. You have just as much access to God as me. Like, you don't need an ordained guy to stand there and, and like, get things straight with you. You can touch as many of the holy things of God as you want. You don't need me to, with my ordained hands, to handle the holy stuff in a special, mystical way. You get to do it. You don't need me to like help you get into the presence of God. Like you can do it yourself. And I hope there is value to me as a teacher and to your Sunday school teachers and to people who have written amazing commentaries. But you have just as much access to study and know God as anyone else on the planet. You have the Spirit and you have the Word. But then one day... We'll all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. One day we will know him perfectly because we see him the way he is. We see him with our own eyes. And we don't need faith anymore in that day because we see him. Glorify God with your life. Permanent relationship with God based on the forgiveness of Jesus. Look at the last point. And I will forgive their iniquities or I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. What was the problem with the old covenant? No matter how many sacrifices you offered, your conscience would just mess it up again, and you'd be plagued again, and then you'd make another sacrifice, and you'd feel good for a little while until you messed it up again, and then you'd have a defiled conscience, and you'd feel awful until you had another sacrifice and another, and it just kept plaguing you. If you read through chapter 9, which we'll do here soon, it said his offering purifies our conscience. It purifies our conscience. I'll forgive their iniquities. Why would I hide behind a tree, behind an excuse, behind a, a fig leaf of any sort? Why would I hide when there's a God who forgives? Why would I make excuses When there's a God who delights to cleanse his people, why on earth would I run when there's a God who died to welcome me? Why would I do that? Like, how crazy is it that I do that? Why would I carry around this sack of bricks of guilt when there's a God who says, just confess it to me. Come into the light and I'll cleanse you whiter than snow. I'll wash you. I'll sanctify you. I'll forgive you. And then look at this. There is a God in heaven who knows everything, past, present, and future, for all of whatever the 10-ish billion people who've ever lived on the planet. He doesn't just know all of that. 
He knows every possible thing that every one of those people could have ever done as well as what they actually would do. And he knows it past, present, and future as if it's like a still picture that he's looking at. And what does the text say? An omniscient God who knows everything is going to take your sin and throw it behind him and forget it. Erase it from his omniscient mind from before him. And that's the good news of forgiveness that creates relationship that leads to a life of glorifying him out of a heart that delights to glorify him. And that's the covenant that you live under. That's the salvation that you live under. Not one of cheap grace, but one of running after Jesus' grace as those who are forgiven and those who are set free. I was listening to a a podcast this week and it, it, it made a statement something like this. You are worse than you can possibly comprehend. You're like, oh, great. Here we go again. You are worse than you can imagine. You don't even know how bad you are. On your worst day of looking at your heart and reminiscing and, and, and dredging up all the bad stuff about you, you know what? You're worse than that. And I am too. I am worse than I could even imagine being. But there's another statement. You're loved more than you could ever know. You're loved more than you could ever know. There is a God who sees more awful stuff about you than you can see about yourself. And that's not bad news that should make you run. It's good news because he sees it all as it is. And he loves you with absolute perfection anyways. Isn't that what we want? Like we're so scared that somebody's going to find out about us. We're so scared they're going to find out about those thoughts in our head. We're so scared that those words that I said are going to get back around to people. We're so scared they're going to see the real us. And yet there's a holy God in heaven that sees the real us. And he doesn't turn away. He doesn't run from what he sees there. He runs to what he sees there. So we're free to see it too. We're free for him to remove it too. Let's look at a few practical things as as we wrap up here. First, what are the ways you generally try to outrun your guilt? What are the ways that you generally try to outrun your guilt? Right, you probably have a set of things and you can be super busy or super distracted or, or, or you're really good at excuses. Right? What are the ways you outrun it? Right, you probably have some personal versions of that. And that would be a great conversation to have in a microgroup or with a trusted friend. Right? What keeps you from genuinely acknowledging or sharing your sin? What keeps you from genuinely acknowledging or sharing your sin? And so the first conversation is you and God can have a conversation. And by the way, you're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. God, I'm starting to see this in my life. God, I I am experiencing real guilt. I've done this. I've said this. I've thought this. God, let's look at it and let's talk about it. It's a great conversation to have. But you know what another conversation to have is? And what keeps you from this? What stops you from going to another person and sharing that same conversation? Now, please, they need to be mature, and they need to be trusted so that they can be confidential, and your business ain't getting spread everywhere, and and they need to be people that are going to give you Jesus and not law in its place, but if you have people like that, what a gift. What a gift to be able to just unload your heart and say, this is the stuff I'm seeing, and I'm taking it to God, but man, I'm wrestling with it getting out, and let's just, let's pray about that. Share Jesus with me over that. What keeps you from doing that? What keeps you from having that conversation with God and others? And then last, what about full gracious forgiveness blesses you today? 
What about full gracious forgiveness blesses you today? What lightens the load of your life about forgiveness? Right? It's there. And I cannot talk about it, and I can tell you how much God loves you and pat you on the back and give you some self-esteem, but it's not going to take it away. If it was, I promise I would. I would much rather just let's erase the sin thing and let's erase the blood thing. Let's talk about the good stuff. If I really thought that would help you, if I really thought that would relieve the burden of your soul, I'd do it. But it won't. What about the thought? Maybe you'll experience that, and I would love for you to be set free today. Maybe you will. But if you don't, what about the thought of all of that weight being pulled out of your life blesses you? What about the thought of Jesus really forgiving and removing all of that weight really encourages you to keep running? great conversation to have so we get better than our old testament cousins got we have so much better to offer than what the world's solution has to offer we have jesus living jesus dying jesus rising again delighting to cleanse us from our sin delighting to forgive us delighting to call to call us loved and righteous let's pray so father in jesus name we bow as those forgiven or we bow on behalf of those who have not yet been forgiven. Lord, there's probably dead people in this room today. Would you make them alive in Jesus? There's people in this room where the veil of Satan is blinding them from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you unblind them today? Would you wake them up today? Would you save them today? But God, my brothers and sisters all over this room, we're carrying weights that your son died to take off of us. We're plagued and we're, we're anxious. We're heavy. Would you set people free today by the good news of your son and the good news of his forgiveness? We pray for that. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. And that's not news for out there, that's news for you. Have you ever been confronted by your sin and convicted of it? Have you ever turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you? If not, come, let's pray together. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. We'd love to talk more about that with you. But maybe for you, you sit here and guilt feels like a weight you've been carrying. And you realize there's areas of your life that aren't glorifying God at all. And you realize how, how burdened life has become because you've tried to outrun something that just stays with you. Come confess, and he promises, he delights to cleanse and forgive. Do that where you are. Do that where you are. Or maybe you're just plagued by guilt that's not rightfully yours. And God wants to take that from you too. How do you need to respond? I don't know. Let's stand together. You can respond here or where you are. Let's stand together and sing.